Uh, mine was too. It took some work to remember where we were at. Uh, but I did remember pretty quickly as I looked at the passage again that we took a break at the end of verse 10. And I don't remember if I told you the reason for that. I think I said something to the effect of, I'm going to wait on 11 and 12 because I'm not ready to handle that just yet. So you'll see why that's the case this morning as we dive into really uh, 11 and 12. Because on the one hand, the big picture is very straightforward. It's a, it's a profound and deep mystery, profound truth, and yet it's very simple to actually say what the big picture is. But then when you start working out the minutiae, the little details of what is Paul talking about, what, are, what exactly does he mean by this word or this word, how do the two relate, how does it relate to this, and even some textual issues, it becomes very, very complicated. So that's where we get to head in just a minute. Uh, but before we do that, we need to get a, a quick recap on where we are, because we need to place these verses in the context of what's going on. These verses aren't a separate thing from the rest of the book of Colossians. They're not separate from the rest of chapter 2. It is very much building on what's already going on in chapter 2, specifically verses 8 all the way through 15. So we'll see if we get to 15 today. We might just be talking about 11 and 12 all morning. That's a very distinct possibility, so I'm going to prepare you for that. Uh, But we will not talk more than today on 11 and 12. All right. Without long introduction out of the way, if someone would be willing to read 8 through 12 for now, just so we get that whole stretch in front of us. All right, thanks, Patty. All right, everybody good now, right? All right, we can be stopped there then, right? Uh, all right, so verse 8, what is going on in verse 8? We need to recap so we know exactly where we're at when we get to verse 11. What is Paul warning against? Don't be fooled, is that what he said? Yes, absolutely, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by what? He gives some examples too. Yeah, philosophy and empty deceit. Uh So just because they have fancy words, don't be fooled by it. Don't be tricked because it just sounds good. Uh, Don't be tricked because it's an idea that you personally like with the way you think. Uh, Empty deceit. Does that sound like a positive thing or a negative thing? (laughs) Very very negative, right? Yeah. Uh, If someone's using deceit, they are trying to do something bad. But notice how blatant Paul's statement is there. When people are trying to deceive you or trying to lead you, they may actually be trying to deceive you. They may realize full and well that they want to uh, make you agree with them on this false view. So even in their own minds, they may know quite well that they're trying to deceive you. Uh, So it's just a very uh, negative connotation there. All right, what are other examples, ways of, or besides philosophy and empty deceit? Traditions. Yeah, uh, an example of that. How can we be deceived by traditions? Yeah, it must be right then. 
Because we've always done it that way. Right. All right, what else? We're in verse 8, towards the latter half. <laughs> right, whatever that entails. Uh, yeah, that one we, we didn't... I'm not super firm on what that means. There's a lot of different views going back and forth, and people are all over this spectrum. This is an allowable spectrum of what does fit. Uh, I take it as evil powers in the world, so probably demonic beings, but, of course, that power is worked out through who? The Lord's still in control, absolutely. But these evil powers are trying to work out power and exert influence. How do they do it in this world? Yeah, 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 false teaching, and that's most relevant for Colossians. Uh, But even bad leaders in the country, anything like that, can fall into this category. So it's very broad. Some people say it includes human rulers. I think that's more of an outflow of these elemental spirits and their influence. Uh, But then look at the last line of verse 8, and this is really what sets us up for 9 on. They're trying to teach you something, and if if you want to consider this a wrap-up for all the other things we just said, what is it? They're trying to teach you... Well, basic principle, that's absolutely correct. But what's that line at the end of verse 8? Yes, against Christ, whatever he taught and said. And if you look at the last phrase of verse 8, at least in the ESV, it says, and not according to Christ. If you want to wrap all the things up we've said, which are all correct, they're trying to teach you not according to Christ. They're trying to teach you unchrist likeness However you want to word that, however you want to say it, they're teaching you directly against your Savior and what he says. That's what they're trying to do, even if they don't always realize it. That's what they're doing. All right, so you understand that sharp, negative contrast of they are trying to teach you bad things that are not from Jesus. That's a big picture of that verse. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Well said. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that human tradition line probably punched pretty hard with them. Just like with the Gentiles, the line about philosophy, the Greeks, that probably hit them really hard. Uh, for us, I think both hit us hard, if we're honest. All right, good. So that's the negative contrast or the foil, you could say, something along those lines. And then verse 9. Not according to Christ, now what in verse 9? Yeah, in him what? Fullness of God, the fullness of deity. Yeah, I didn't phrase my question well, but your answer was great, Lee. Uh, in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the source. This, these other things we listed before are not according to Christ. They are not from God. They are evil things. Or at the very least, they're taking good things, perverting them, but making you think they're still good things. And so it can be very deceptive. But here we see the source in verse 9. Uh, but then we're going to relate that to you. And how it relates to you is in verse 10. So in him, we have the fullness of deity that dwells bodily. And then we also have a play on words in verse 10. How does it then relate to you that Christ is the fullness of deity? 
He's the head of the body. Good. We're right. We're filled in him or by him. Using that instrumental by him is appropriate, too. He is the fullness, the deity, the so hard to say this. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And that is the, the well, if you will, from which you are filled. So you're filled because he is the fullness of, if you want to put it that way. Um, and then as, as Israel pointed out, he's the head uh, of all rule and authority, all power, all dominion, all good, all wisdom, all treasures are sourced in Christ. And that is the big picture. But as we have moved into verse 10, we're now starting to relate it to, well, how does this affect you? What does this mean for you and who you are? And that's where we begin this fun conversation in 11 and 12 that has made people's heads spin, mostly mine, for a long time. Uh, And I'm just going to reread just 11 and 12. So in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. All right, so we need to get into the details of what circumcision is referring to, what baptism is referring to, how the two relate. Uh, what does that say about the actual covenant signs of circumcision and baptism? Uh, So there's a lot of, (laughs) they equal each other, but they don't equal each other. So there's continuity, there's discontinuity, and how do we put all these pieces together? That's the difficulty of this. But before we dive into the nitty-gritty, I just want us to have the big picture of what's going on here in mind. So if you have one doctrine in mind, one thing you need to take away from these two verses, based on how it sits in context, what do you think that big picture point that Paul is trying to get across to you? Yes. Don't be afraid to get the answer wrong. This is a difficult question. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's very much feeding off the previous verses. That's a good application of it, yes. Other ideas? Yes, and I think you're getting on to the, the right track of what I think the biggest idea picture is. So good, yeah. Yes, absolutely that is true. And we're going to see that as we continue. Well said. Uh, as we relate to Christ, how have we been connected to him? How thoroughly have we been connected to him? Yeah. You can't get much closer than that. (laughs) We have been so thoroughly united to and connected with Jesus Christ that there's an inseparable bond there that exists. And I don't mean we equal Christ. Don't take it that way. This is a connection thing. So you are so thoroughly connected to, united with Christ, that everything that he did for you through redemption has an effect for you. It's as if you went through his uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, in a sense. Physically, of course, you were not there. But you are so thoroughly connected with him, his person, and his work on your behalf that you are able to share in the benefits of those things. 
And not all those benefits are even positive things to where you gain this, but also what you lost. Because there are some things we needed to lose. Sin, guilt, shame, condemnation, all those things we lose. That's a result of our union with Christ. Just as much as our glorification in in the future and our current redemption, uh, sanctification, all these things are tied to this union with Christ. So if you get nothing else from this whole lesson, as we dive into the nitty-gritty of these two verses, this is what I want you to remember. What Paul is trying to drive home with like a 2,000-pound hammer is that you are united to Christ and you are inseparably connected to Christ. There's absolutely nothing that can break that bond, that union that exists. If If someone was to someday fall away from the faith, were they ever truly united to Christ? No, because if you're truly united to Christ, you cannot fall away, period. Now, it's not something we can visibly see, and that's why it can cause us problems trying to figure out how this all works. But if there's a true union that exists, it is one that is completely inseparable because the Father is holding you in his hand because you're connected to his Son. And if nothing else, you need to understand and remember that from what these two verses talk about. That is the big picture. So if you get lost in what circumcision is or what baptism is, Don't worry, just remember the bigger picture. This is about your union with Christ and that you are thoroughly united to him in every way. That should be something that gives you great confidence and joy and encouragement in your faith. And that's the big picture. All right. With the big picture laid out, now we get into the fun little nitty-gritty details here. Uh, So let's look at verse 11. So in him, that's who? Christ. And yeah, notice that word in him. This this statement in him in Colossians is everywhere. And we're going to look through some verses in a minute where we see in him or, or in Jesus or in Christ. However it is worded, it means the same thing. So in Jesus, in Christ also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. All right. So there's some basic questions we need to lay out before we move into the details. Who is the recipient of the circumcision? We are. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to put you. We need to have these things lined out in our heads so we don't get lost in the other conversations. All right? That's the recipient. We, in him, you, in Christ, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, who is performing the sacrifice of the circumcision? Ooh, is it? The Father? God? God is definitely correct. <laughs> well, is it Christ or is it the Father? Ooh, now we're getting into all the different meanings of what circumcision of Christ could mean. Because there are multiple options grammatically for what that could refer to. Uh, um, I want to make sure I get these all straight in my head here. Okay. So you're taking that to point in what direction? God the Father. Okay. 
Anyone else want to chime in before we talk about the, that of, circumcision of Christ word? <laughs> there we go. We got the full Godhead down. Uh, yeah, the answer is yes, yes. Uh, God's the trump card, right? Um, yeah, so what are the possible options of circumcision of Christ? Because you're right to jump to that point in the verse and try to figure out what that means, because that then determines who is doing the circumcising, or at least it helps you. So what are possible options? What could the circumcision of Christ mean? Just grammatically, what could that of Christ be? Could it be his death? Okay, well, you're jumping to like what the meaning is. Uh, I mean more like grammatically. So is it Christ doing the circumcising? Is that what I mean by circumcision of Christ? You're absolutely right in what you're getting to. We're just not there yet. Uh, is it Christ's circumcision? We receive Christ's circumcision? Yeah, we're talking about union with him, right? Yeah. And I think that is the way we should take that of. And that's what we read past of, of words so often and so quickly. Normally, just by context and your thinking, you don't even think about it. You just know what it means and you move on. But then you get to something like this and you're like, wait a minute. What does of, circumcision of Christ mean? Well, I think, I think Israel's correct here. Uh, and I think that the one performing it is the Father. And I need to make you come up here and write here. Uh, but yeah, I think what we're talking about is that you were circumcised with Christ's circumcision by the Father. Is that making sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well put. Mm-hmm. We will get to that conversation in a few minutes. You were on the right track, though, I think. All right. Uh, so I think, are we agreed on this? The one performing the circumcision is the Father. Does anyone want to argue differently so far? Dave, you look like you're questioning. Uh-huh. All right, so if you, if you are unsure of this, you can always accept that, right? <laughs> no, and that's fair. It's hard to really completely separate what the Trinity does in our salvation. All the Trinity is active in our salvation. Uh, so obviously that leads to a close connection, and then it's hard to separate what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yep. Yeah. And that's the next question. What is it? 
So I think you're right on, you're hitting the nail right on the head is to really shore up this, if we can even know 100% for certain that it's specifically one person versus the Trinity, is that it would be helpful to answer what is it? What is this circumcision? Christ dying on the cross? Yeah, and you're skipping to the big picture. I mean, not not skipping, but you're going straight to the big picture, which is good. What does the verse say here, though? Let's do that first. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's putting off of flesh, the, the Greek, putting off the sarks. Uh, what does that flesh mean here? First, think original circumcision. What was original circumcision? At least, yes, in the actual act, it was a physical cutting off, removing of the flesh. All right? Uh, is that all circumcision was? Yes. Right, and so, okay, well, we go, it's a physical sign, and yet the Old Testament also adds that it's a spiritual sign. So that's, in a way, confusing, but in a way, it actually helps us in the long run. Go to Deuteronomy 10, and let's just look at one of those examples. Deuteronomy 10:16. Originally just for Jews, right? Right. So Deuteronomy 10.16, and once everybody's there, if someone would be willing to read that. Did I write down the wrong reference? Oh, no. So there's external circumcision. That marked you as a Jew. Uh, And, of course, were the Jews actually required to practice circumcision physically? What was the deeper meaning in reality that it was meant to represent? God's chosen ones, meaning what has happened to their hearts? Is it just a physical marker? They're just physically ethnic Jews? Is that what matters here? Yeah. Right. Right. And then Israel, what did you say? Okay, I thought you said something. Yes, there's a spiritual element even with circumcision. All right. So now flip back to Colossians. Okay, and now we're getting to the next big, not problem, question. Okay, circumcision, does it equal or not equal or kind of equal Christ's circumcision. So we just talked about and looked at Old Testament uh, circumcision and what it was briefly, but that's what we just looked at. Now here, does it say specifically Old Testament circumcision? Yeah, it actually doesn't. Now it says circumcision, so of course, if you're a Jew or you know your Old Testament, your mind's going to go straight to the Old Covenant sign. But what is it described as here? Without hands. 
Implying what? It's spiritual. Implying who's doing it? God. Yeah, we'll stick with God for now. That's just easier. Uh, I think it's the Father, but it's God no matter what. So that's the easier answer, right? Uh, so it was made without hands. It was made by God, and it is a spiritual circumcision. That somehow in your salvation, there's been a spiritual circumcision. So this is a question. How does this relate to this? Thoughts? Confusion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we see that is definitely Christ's circumcision that's going on. So then how does the old circumcision connect to it? Is it something completely different and completely new, or is it something that's building on this? And that's kind of the question. Yeah, well said. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so I think sometimes, and we'll we'll talk about baptism here in just a second, and we need to get to that. But sometimes in our minds, and especially in Presbyterian circles, I hear people say. Baptism is the replacement of circumcision. And this is getting nitpicky, but I disagree with that statement. I think that baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. It is the greater sign building on that. And I think what we're talking about here is essentially the same thing, not exactly equal, but pretty much the same thing. Circumcision, it wasn't wrong. It's not completely separate from this. Christ's circumcision is what this always pointed to. And people just didn't always thoroughly understand. This was meant to be a physical and spiritual marker of who you are and who you belong to, pointing you to Christ, pointing you to the Messiah, pointing you to your Father. Christ's circumcision spiritually accomplishes everything that the old circumcision was meant to point you to. It is the inner spiritual reality that takes place in salvation of which this was just a sign pointing you forward to. Right, and I think so. Their minds understood this well, but then what did many Jews do with circumcision? Did they always understand it? Well, I think normally that's right. But what did some Jews do with this? They used the actual Yeah, yeah, and so you're even going into like... Uh, some Judaizer kind of stuff, too. But yeah, it's like, we're children of Abraham because we've been circumcised. Forget about the heart and everything circumcision is meant to represent. We receive the sign, therefore we're Christian. Well, no. Circumcision was always meant to be, does the inner reality match the external reality? Is it pointing you forward to God and his promises of what he will do to your heart? Or are you just happy to be ethnically Jewish? And that's kind of the big picture of what's going on here. All right, there's a lot more we could say. Um, well, I guess, okay, there's one more thing we need to say before we talk about baptism. Um, the removal of flesh, that whole idea. So just as physically there was something cut off, uh, so spiritually 
The old nature is cut off. The flesh and its sin and its power over you is put to death in Christ. Because you're united to Christ, everything he did means the death of your old nature and your body of flesh. And that's the big picture of what's going on in circumcision. But to really understand it much further, we need to connect to baptism. But does anyone have a thought before we do that? Uh, So if we want to redo this graph, I'm going to say this goes up and is fulfilled by Christ's circumcision. And so that's how we're going to wrap that up for right this second. All right, let's go to baptism. Uh, So verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So again, who's the recipient? Who is being baptized? You are. Yes, correct. We are the church. Uh, and if everyone connected to Christ is being baptized. All right. Uh, who's performing this baptism? Yeah, I think if whatever you answer for the first, I think it's the answer here. So if you want to say it's the father, I think it's carried over. Uh, if you want to say it's God and you don't want to decide between the Trinity, uh, then it's God. All right. Good. Um, now the question, what is it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I affirm. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, and that's a good way to say it. And that's why I like saying that baptism fulfills circumcision. It does not simply replace it. It is a grander, fuller, better sign. And so, you know, if you go into the whole Baptist versus Presbyterian debate around this issue, um, okay, well, we'll get there. I'm I'm jumping the gun. We'll get there. Um, I think that's definitely, and in the verse, that's definitely part of it, yes. Yes. So what does it say? Is it saying something different than what circumcision means in this passage? This removal of flesh, this killing off of the old nature. No, I really don't think it is. I think we're equating the old and the new covenant signs in a way to help you understand the way your old nature has been destroyed. Now, yes, there are vestiges that remain in this life. There are sins that we still struggle with throughout this life. But the power of your old man has been put to death. They are dying. You are overcoming them day by day by the power of the Spirit uh, throughout the course of your life. That's what sanctification is until a glorification, boom, is completed. And you don't have to deal with that old sinful nature anymore in any sense. And so that's what's going on here, and I think that is the bigger picture. And I'm not sure how you can really parse a different meaning of what uh, of how baptism is being used here. Um, it is the removal of the old nature. 
And that brings us back to the summary of our union with Christ. Our old man has been put to death, and we are made alive in Christ as we wait a perfect life in the future, our glorification. And that's the big picture of what's going on here. And we can't lose sight of that as we go into the baptism debate here in a second and how this connects with circumcision and all that. All right, any other thoughts or comments on anything here before we go to my handout and chaos? All right, well, let's go to the handout and let chaos loose. All right, so how many of y'all are familiar with a logical progression? And if the name sounds scary, don't worry. It's not the name. That's the problem. (laughs) But all a logical progression is, is when you're writing stuff down and you have sentences, you're looking at what's the main idea? What is building on this idea? Maybe you indent that below the main idea. Uh, This idea is describing the last idea, so you indent it again. This idea is parallel to the first idea. So you put it even with that. And so it just gives you a logical flow chart for what is being talked about in the passage. And so now if you go to your sheet, so look at verse 8 there under the first view of 11 through 12. And I know I have starting in verse 8. I'm just trying to give you the context when I did that. But see, verse 8 is, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now everything subset, the rest of verse 8 is explaining that one line. So it takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's kind of a side statement, similar, uh, almost a parallel statement. But then you have ways that they might take you captive by philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So those are three parallel ways where they might take you captive by philosophy. So do you understand the logical flowchart and how this is just indented to tell you it's a subset of the previous statement? So in 9, that's parallel to 8, and what it's talking about is just another statement. It's not under 8. It's not uh, over 8. It's just even with it. And then 10 is this last even statement in this section that we've got recorded. And that's that you have been filled in him, in him. That's why I keep harping on union with Christ. This is a big category under which we're working. So then everything in 11 and 12 is a subset under verse 10. It's kind of explaining and working some things out under that heading. Uh, So we're talking about Christ, who we have been filled in. And so now go look at 11. In him, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, this is where it gets fun. Has it been fun? I think it's been fun already, but this is where it gets more fun. Uh, So you see the parallel there. Where is the parallel in the first view? Between 11 and below. In which? Now, this is where the debate is. In the Greek, this is the same wording for in him and in which. It is a neuter um, uh, pronoun. Is that the right word? Yeah, it's a neuter pronoun. Now, neuter pronouns can mean he he or it in Greek. Uh, It's very normal to interchange them. Uh, That's completely regular. So the question is, what is the in which referring to in verse 12? Because it's the exact same word as in 11. So most Greek scholars, or at least the, the first few that I'm looking at here, would see these two as parallel statements. And in which, where in my ESV it says in which. uh, But I think a better view, at least according to this first view, is that it's actually talking about Christ still. That that should be in him too. Or in which, which referring to Christ. In whom referring to Christ. Because we're talking about who we were raised with there. You see that in the verse. It says in which you were also raised with him. 
But I think it should be in him you were also raised with him through faith. And so if you look at the second view, this is the contrast. What's paralleled in the second view? In him and what? Yeah. And so this is the difference between these two views. One view is relating and paralleling in him and the baptism idea. Whereas the view above the first view, it's the in him you were circumcised parallels with in him you were also raised through faith. So it's your resurrection, really, and the circumcision paralleling. Um, now, big picture, there's a few reasons for this. Um, organize my thoughts here. Okay. First of all, it's just the verbs being used. Um, when you look at the first view, it's two finite verbs being paralleled. And then in verse 12, that is a participle, which is not normally paralleled. I mean, just if you go through Greek grammar, that's not really how that works. Uh, so that subset in that view, uh, that is describing the circumcision. The baptism is describing the circumcision in this view. Now, if you go to the second view, they're taking that participle and they're making it line up with the finite verb. And then the other finite verb, which I believe forms a better parallel, is subset under the participle. Now, if I completely lost y'all with this talk, I'm using grammar and language stuff, and I understand it's confusing. Um, so the big picture of these two different views and the difference is one says that baptism is a subset of circumcision in this conversation, whereas the other view says that they're not. I think that's the easiest way to sum it up, uh, that it is a separate thing that is equal to the circumcision rather than a description of it. I see confused looks. Hopefully, we'll clear this up as we go along. Um, mm-hmm. Right. It is awkward in the English. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in whom uh, would be a little bit better in the English, but still, it, it works in the Greek. I promise. In the Greek. It looks normal, and it's a very appropriate thing. And so in the Greek, both in him and in whom there in 12 in the first view are grammatically possible, grammatically fine. Those are the options that you have. But then you have to look at context and the, the bigger picture of the passage to figure out which fits better, what the flow is. And I believe the verbs and the flow of the passage, the context, everything points to that they are parallel statements where baptism is being used to describe that circumcision, to build on that idea, rather than a parallel thought. Um, yeah, it's awkward in English. That, that's that Greek to English. It's not one-to-one. They're different. Uh, you've got to translate it differently. Translation is difficult. Um, sum it up there. Oh, also, okay, the last thing to why I think the first view is much better grammatically. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 3. All right, what are the first two words there? All right, who are we talking about here? Christ. Okay, good. Now look at verse 6. Someone read the last four words of verse 6. In him. All right, who's him? Christ. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in him. Verse 9. First three words, I think. For in him, 
Again, talking about Christ. Verse 10, filled in him. And then verse 11 even starts, in him. So if you look at the, the way the passage flows, the main focus of the passage, which is union with Christ, union with Christ is a much more central major topic that is being expounded upon than specifically baptism. Is baptism, is it important in this text? Absolutely. It's completing that circumcision uh, parallel. But I don't think it's the main thought, and that's the difference for these reasons, this, these differing views, and that's why I hold the view I do. Uh, I know that's confusing. I apologize. I explained it the best I could. Any questions before we try to wrap this up a little bit more and get into the last stretch of this morning's topic? Good. <laughs> Good. All right, any other comments or questions or, Cooper, you're insane, get out of here. And just so you know, if you disagree with me and you hold a second view, you are not a heretic. That, that is a grammatical option. It is a theological option. So you can disagree with me on this, and you are fine uh, to be here. So Just so you know that. Uh, you don't have to hold it just because I, I believe it's the better option. I, I could be wrong. It is possible. Not likely, but it's, it's possible. <laughs> All right, now let's move into the last area for this morning. And that's how this relates to the whole uh, circumcision and baptism debate, and as, as we normally think of the baptism debate between uh, Baptists and Presbyterians. So go to Romans 4.11, and just kind of keep in mind a lot of the big picture stuff we've talked about, um, what we read in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy. That's important as well. We'll read another passage, which Preston mentioned a minute ago, and we'll read that in a minute. Romans 4:11, and this is talking about Abraham and how he was justified by faith. And then it even uh, <clears throat> Paul in this section even explains how uh, uh, circumcision factored into things, uh, how the sign and seal, which are words we use in the, Re- the Reformed world and our confession, it talks about baptism as a sign and a seal of the covenant of faith. And if you've ever wondered, if, or if you've ever heard those words, and you've ever wondered, how did we come up with those? Is this just uh, Presbyterian um, uh, hijinks trying to trick you? Well, we got it from this verse, actually. Uh, so we got it straight from Scripture. So someone could read verse 11. All right. Thank you. Now, we can't get into all the details of how exactly Paul's using this in Romans 4, um, but that doesn't actually change the meaning of this section. What does it mean that uh, circumcision is a sign? Don't overthink it. What's a sign on the road represent? It's visible? Yeah, something for you to see. And what is it doing for you when you see it? Why do you need to see a sign on the road when you're driving? Giving you information, right. So it's a sign of something that exists. So if it's a stop sign, what is that stop sign telling you? What is it representing before you? Well, that you need to stop. That's what it's, it's telling you to do that. But why? If I put up a please stop here sign and stuck it up myself on the road, would that carry any weight with anybody? Especially if it was hand-drawn and cardboard and no one could read what it said. Uh, it wouldn't work. 
There is nothing backing it, just me. And I can't enforce anything. So what is backing an actual stop sign on the road? A law. The U.S. government has put this sign here to tell you that it is a law that is enforced by police officers that you must stop at this intersection. So it's a sign of a reality behind the sign. The sign isn't the reality. It's just the sign telling you that there's a law in place that you need to stop. And so in that way, circumcision is a sign of the covenant, is a picture of the reality behind it, which is God has made a covenant with his people. That's the big picture. All right, but how is it a seal? Sometimes this gets a little more complicated. This can be harder to answer. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the best way. It's the stamp that this is truth. And that as you are circumcised, if you are laying hold of the promises of the gospel, yes, I use that word even for the Old Testament, if you're laying hold of these promises that God has stamped your soul that you are his and that these promises are guaranteed. So you kind of see almost a dual aspect to the sealing. Uh, So here's the sign, here's what it represents, and God seals it and says it's true for you if you follow him. And that's really the big picture of circumcision is those two things, and that's how it operated for Abraham too. It was given to seal him to say, yes, the faith you have means that you are saved. That's the big picture here. All right. Now, how do we then, or let's see, let's look at one more passage before we, before I say the next thing. Go to Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44, and then just a second, I think we'll use 7 through 9, but let me make sure of that. I know, this isn't the one Preston was quoting. This is something different. All right, if someone could read 7 through 9 of Ezekiel 44. All right, so what's the problem in this passage? He was entering the sanctuary, a holy place of God, the place consecrated and set apart. Uncircumcised foreigners. Now, are we only talking about the physical sign here? No, now some people might say, but they just said circumcision. But if they're uncircumcised and they're trying to enter the temple, then that means nobody is following the prescribed law of the land, the prescribed law of God before you can go to worship, which means they don't care about honoring God or his worship. So no matter what, you have to read in the spiritual element here. I mean, it's just you can't avoid it. There is a physical element that they have failed to do, and it represents their physical, their uh, spiritual hardness of heart. This is the failure. And so what's the promise that God says in verse 9? Yes, absolutely. 
And I never, again, no more is anyone ever supposed to enter God's sanctuary who is not circumcised. And it's not just talking physical, as you just said. It is heart and physical. So what the physical points to, that reality is what really must be true for you to enter into the courts of God. You must be spiritually circumcised. Your old nature has to be put to death. And that's the spiritual reality going on in circumcision. And so, again, we have to be reminded of the fact that circumcision is not just a physical sign. It is a physical sign with a spiritual reality behind it. Now, you can abuse that. You can misuse that. Israelites did it all through their history. Oh, I'm circumcised. That means I'm saved no matter how I live and no matter what I think about God and his law. No, that's a misuse, just like we can misuse baptism now. And so here's the big question to wrap it all up, and I don't think this will take long. How does circumcision then relate to baptism in this passage? And just big picture, how do they relate? A sign. They are both signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, some might argue, well, that's old covenant, new covenant. Slightly different. And yes, okay, point taken. But it's still covenant, sign, and seal of God's covenant with us. All right? Are they one-to-one? Are they exactly the same, circumcision and baptism? Yeah. Right. Right. And so this was meant to point to the heart conversion, but there are shortfalls of circumcision. This is not the fullness of the reality. It's just a sign. And so you mentioned one with women or not. I mean, of course, under their covenant family head, they're circumcised in that sense. But baptism is now for all men and women. All right. What else is better about baptism than circumcision? It's not painful. There's no shedding of blood. The whole Old Testament model of the ceremonial sacrificial system was built upon blood, blood being poured out, blood being shed, death. Because you need somebody to die in your place, to pay the penalty that you cannot. That's the whole Old Testament picture. So circumcision, it matches that. Something has to be physically cut off. There has to be death. But then baptism, is there any blood in this sign? <laughs> it points back to blood because the blood has been fulfilled. It has, it has been fully realized. So Baptism is really just a realized version of circumcision. It's not just replacing it. It's a better, fuller, richer sign full of more grace. And so circumcision, just as it had the faith and physical element, baptism also has the faith and physical element. Does water physically go over you at baptism? Or you go under, we're not going to get into mode, but. Yes, there's physically water in baptism. There's a physical sign, and there's a spiritual reality behind that sign. And it's just a richer, fuller, better sign. But always the reality behind it is the circumcision made without hands that the passage talks about. Uh, Yes, good. Yes. 
Correct. Right, when they believe, when they are justified. Yes, at that point in time, that is when they lay hold of the promises and it becomes a reality. Is that any different than back here, though? For children, certain. Now, we talk about Abraham. He was given a sign and a seal as an affirmation of the faith he already had because it's a sign of faith. But after him, he was circumcised. Eight days old, every male child. At least that was the rule, how often they followed it and how well they followed it. That's a different story, but that's the reality. So how was it a sign of faith for those kids? Yes. wasn't wrong. I was just trying to figure out the... Okay, good. Yeah, you're right. The promise is the same in both. You can be baptized and still not lay hold of the spiritual promises. You can be circumcised and not lay hold of the spiritual promises. And so the point is that the outer sign matches the inner reality. And that's why it is a sign and a seal. It's not to say that, yes, you 100% believe right this second. Well, if it was that, we couldn't baptize infants. But if that was the case, they couldn't circumcise infants either. Right. So it's not just the physical marker, it's the spiritual reality underneath. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. And so no matter how you look at it, no matter how you address this, if you honestly parse this apart, there is a connection between circumcision and baptism. The only question is, what is the connection? So depending on your view, that can change. Um, Any other final thoughts while I put together my last thought here? So just one last thing about baptism versus Presbyterian view here. Some Baptists will say that there is no connection at all, that in this passage they're completely separate things, and that's why they have the different flow chart. I don't really have time to talk too much more about. Now, as one of my old professors, Dr. Kerr, would say, those who are more nuanced in their view would admit that there is a connection, that this is a faith, a spiritual and a physical sign, just like baptism but just baptism is a completely new thing, so there's no carryover in terms of the sign. There's no continuity, basically, between including infants. That becomes the difference. So the more nuanced say, no, this is just something new. Um, others try to disagree entirely that there is basically no connection. Uh, that makes sense? Try to wrap that up in like a minute. So, All right, well, if there's no other thoughts or comments, I'll close this in prayer. One final call. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word, even the more difficult passages, even the ones that in many ways can make our heads spin, that we don't know which view is correct, um, that we can think about for hours and hours and hours and still not feel like we have a great grasp on it. And yet at the same time that we can see the bigger picture, the greater reality in the passage, that we have been united to Christ, and that therefore we are in the hand of the Father. And that We are his, we are his adopted child, and we can come to you with our prayer requests and our our needs, um, and that we know that you care for us and that you love us and that nothing can ever remove us from your hand. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have united yourself to us, uh, for in that is all our hope. I pray all this in Jesus' name.